God's word for us this morning is found in the book of Acts, chapter 15, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 21. Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. If you didn't bring a Bible this morning, there should be one in the pew just in front of you. And this text is found on page 962 in that Bible. Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, reporting the conversation of the Gentiles, and they gave great joy to all the brethren. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party, the Pharisees, rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to charge them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter rose and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, but cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you make trial of God by putting a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we shall be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly kept silence. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the dwelling of David which has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up, that the rest of men may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who has made these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the pollutions of idols and from unchastity and from what is strangled and from blood. For from early generations, Moses has had in every city those who preach him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. The Baptist General Conference has now passed an extraordinarily significant milestone. On Thursday, we approved a new constitution. And on Thursday, on Friday, we elected a new president, Bob Ricker. And if we took a survey across the churches, some of them represented here, I'm sure, we would find out that there are many churches in the Baptist General Conference on the brink of Similarly significant decisions in their own church life. Bethlehem, for one, 
will be facing major decisions this fall concerning the building of a sanctuary or not, and concerning the revision of a governance structure or not. The deacons have been studying this issue of governance for well over a year, and a long-range planning committee in one form or another has been in existence for three years And if I read the signs correctly, both of these groups will lay their recommendations before the church this fall for our consideration. Well, that's the institutional background for this message this morning. But there's a personal background as well as an institutional one. Two weeks ago, I preached at uh, Irvine Presbyterian Church with my friend Ben Patterson. And after the service, uh, Jim Conway came up to me. You may have heard of him. He's written on men in midlife crisis. That's how he's best known. And we talked for a few minutes about Bethlehem and about the fact that I've been here seven years and about the fact that I don't have any dreams beyond Bethlehem except heaven. And he said, well, then you probably haven't had a midlife crisis yet, have you? And I said, well... I don't know. I'm 41. And he, he laughed and he said, oh, well, the average is 42.5. <laughs> got a year before you hit the wall. I'm supposed to next summer become an insurance salesman. <laughs> or, he said, buy a sailboat. Well, I think... What the institution, and I'm going to really address this message to three people, John Piper, Bethlehem Baptist Church, and the Baptist General Conference. So what I need, what Bethlehem needs, and what the Baptist General Conference needs at these crucial junctures in our lives is a clear, resounding, biblical word from God in answer to two questions. Who are we and why are we here? It is absolutely essential for long-term, fruitful ministry that we be able to answer the question, Who are we and why are we here? With no ambiguity and no uncertainty. Because as soon as that becomes vague, the crises take their tolls. Well, the Bible answers that question with many different words. And I only want to talk about one of them this morning from Acts chapter 15, verses 16, 17, and 18. But first, let's get the context clear before us. Most of you know what the context is. Let me rehearse it briefly. It's about 15 years since Jesus died, rose, and went to reign over China, Russia, and America at his father's right hand. In the church in Jerusalem, some Christian Pharisees, that's not a contradiction in term, Paul is a Christian Pharisee, sent some representatives up to Antioch preaching, and you can see what they preached in verse 1, that you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. 
And that did not go over well with Paul and Barnabas, who were there. You remember the book of Galatians. And if the book of Galatians is any indication, the controversy in Antioch was red hot. So the church appoints Barnabas and Paul to go down to the elders and the apostles in Jerusalem to strive for unity in doctrine. And they go. Now, Luke, in this chapter, records the phases of the council for us. There are four of them. Let me just mention them briefly. Phase number one is verse five. The Christian Pharisees get their say. They stand up and say, Gentiles must be circumcised or they can't be saved. Phase number two is Peter, verses seven to eleven. And Peter gives a testimony in the council and he says, Back when I visited the centurion, Cornelius, God made no distinction among Jew and Gentile. But as I was preaching, the Holy Spirit fell upon uncircumcised Gentiles. And he discerned then and concluded, by faith, through grace, they will be saved. Third phase in the council was not a speech, but a brief record in verse 12 of what Paul and Barnabas said, namely that God had not made any distinction in terms of wonders and signs among Gentiles, but rather he had through the hand of Paul and Barnabas done wonders and signs for these uncircumcised people to draw them into the faith. Phase number four is the one I want us to focus on. It's in verses 13 to 21, how James draws things together. He makes a resolution. It carries the day. He uses a prophetic word to buttress his conclusion. And I want to begin reading with you again at verse 14. Simeon, that is Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, as it is written, Then he quotes Amos 9. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the dwelling of David, which is fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up that the rest of men may seek the Lord. All the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who has made these things, made these things known from of old or who has done these things from of old. Therefore, my judgment is, James says, that we should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God. Now, I have four questions. This is the backbone of the message this morning. I have four questions about this text, these words of James. Question number one, what is the point of bringing in this Old Testament quotation? That is, what has James said that he wants to support from the Old Testament prophetic writings? Question number two, what's the meaning of this quotation in its Old Testament context? Question number three. How does the quotation of Amos 9 support what he has just said, what James has just said? And fourth, on the basis of what we've seen, what is the biblical answer here to who we are at Bethlehem and why we're here? All right, let's go. One verse or one question at a time. Number one. What is the quotation of the Old Testament prophets intended to support? Why is it brought in? And the answer to that is given in verses 14 and 15, isn't it? Verse 15 says, and with this, the words of the prophets 
agree. Then he quotes the prophecy. So James wants to show that that the prophets are in agreement with this. You see that word this in verse 15? So we have to ask, what does this refer to? Verse 14 gives the answer. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. This is in agreement with what the prophets say. So what is it that James has said that he now brings in prophetic writings to support? I think we could sum it up like this. What he has said is that in the ministry of Peter, God has visited Gentiles and he has taken out of them a people for himself from Gentiles who are called by his name. In other words, there are three pieces to what he's trying to support from the Old Testament. The first piece is God himself did the visiting. The second piece is he visited uncircumcised Gentiles. And the third piece is he did the visiting through Peter. So James is saying here these decisive truths for settling the issue about circumcision are taught in the prophets of the Old Testament. And he uses Amos 9. But before we turn to Amos 9, I want you to notice something. He does not say that he's quoting Amos 9. Who does he say he's quoting? Prophets, plural. He says the words of the prophets, all of them to one degree or another, agree with what I have just said concerning God's visitation of the Gentiles to take out a people for himself through Peter. But then he uses the words of Amos. Now, this is important because he does not use the exact words of Amos. It causes a lot of trouble for people that he doesn't quote it quite right. And he doesn't say he was quoting it. That's important. He's using the words of Amos to state the teaching of the prophets. All right, let's go to Amos 9. Can you find it? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. So you open your Bible, you'll find one of those maybe. Let's go to Amos chapter 9. Hosea, Joel, Amos. And we're into our second question now. Namely, what is the meaning of this quotation in its Old Testament context? That's going to be real important for understanding its use by James. Now, to see the context, I'm going to begin reading with you at verse 8 of Amos chapter 9. God is prophesying judgment upon his own people here. He says, Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not destroy utterly the house of Jacob, says the Lord, for lo, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations, among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall upon the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say evil shall not overtake or meet us. Then notice the turn and the shift in in Amos language now. In verse 11, he shifts from judgment to hope. From tearing down 
to rebuilding. He says, in that day, he's talking about some future day. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this. Now, what is God saying through his prophet Amos? We could sum it up like this. God is saying there is coming a time when anger and judgment will be put away and God will take his people and begin to rebuild the walls of the fallen booth of David. And those people then will become an instrument of reaching the nations. Now, that's going to take a little bit of arguing because it's not obvious that that's exactly what it means. Let me go back with you and and try to explain a couple of things I just said. I am interpreting the fallen booth of David as the people of Israel. People. Now, that might take some explaining. My rationale for that is the context of the preceding verse and the following verse. You'll notice what is broken down in verse 10 or 8 through 10. What has fallen? It's people. He says, all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword. And then he begins to talk about the rebuilding. And then notice the pronoun that he uses in verse 12 without any break as he moves from verse 11 about the rebuilding of this broken down booth. He says that they, well, who's they? It's the booth. It's these people who were broken down, ruined by sin and scattered everywhere that they might possess Edom and the nations. So I conclude that the repairing of the booth and the rebuilding of the tent is the restoration of the people of God. Now, verse 12 in Amos 9 describes the purpose of this restoration or this rebuilding, namely that Edom might be possessed. And Edom, of course, is one of the hostile Gentile nations. And you might say, well, wait a minute, where in the world do you get from this text that this is anything like evangelism or missions or winning Edom? Isn't this subjugation? Isn't this captivity of Edom and then the nations? How do you make this mean missions? It's not too hard if you just read on in verse 12 and think. As you read on in verse 12, it says that not only is he rebuilding the people of Israel so that they would possess the remnant of Edom, but so that they would possess all the nations who are called by my name. Now, just stop and think about that for a moment. If subjugation and enslavement and captivity is meant here, why does he say that the Objects of this captivity are those who are called by the name of the Lord. They would never say that. There is going to be a captivity of the enemies. All the nations will be ruled with a rod of iron one day. That is not what is being talked about here. 
These are the people upon whom the name of the Lord has been called. And therefore, the possessing of these people is the ingathering of the elect from all the nations of the world. The defeat and the subjugation is not in view here. And this is exactly what Peter meant or what James meant when he said all the prophets talk this way. Let me give you some examples. Isaiah 11:10. In that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as an ensign to the peoples. Him shall the nations seek. That's not captivity. And his dwelling shall be glorious. Or take Zechariah chapter 2, verse 11. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in the midst of you. That's not captivity. That's, that's the ingathering of the nations to the people of God. So, in answer to the second question, what is the meaning of this quotation in its Old Testament context? I would sum it up like this. The meaning is that there's coming a day, Amos says, there's coming a day when God will turn away from tearing down and he will begin to build up, restore, repair the ruins of his people. And then he will make that people the instrument by which he will gather the nations to himself into one people. Question number three. How does this prophetic word support what James has just said here in Acts 15, 14? Now, remember what James has just said. He has said that through the ministry of Peter, God himself visited Gentiles and he took from the Gentiles, a people for his name. Is that in the Old Testament? Because you see, James is talking to Pharisees. He's got to convince Pharisees. And their one authority is the Old Testament. And so he says, the prophets taught this. And then he quotes Amos 9, 11, and 12. Let's look at how he does it. Verse 16. He says, I will return, quoting God, I will return and I will rebuild the dwelling of David, which has fallen. And I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up. Now, what do we understand him to mean? I understand him to mean, in line with the Old Testament, that God is at work to restore his people, especially Israel. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners and assemble a new people, a new and true Israel. And he appointed how many apostles? Twelve. Why? Well, because he's gathering a new people of Israel. And he wants to signal loud and clear, I'm starting over again and I've got twelve. And I'm going to rebuild the walls of this people. And I'm going to make this people great. And then in verse 17, God gives the purpose for why he is rebuilding the ruins of his people. It is not that they would hoard the blessings of salvation, 
but that the rest of men might seek the Lord. All the Gentiles who are called by the name of the Lord. So let me try to sum up what James is saying. Peter is a part of the rebuilt ruins of the people of God. And he, in accord with Scripture, did not hoard them, though it took a vision to cause him not to hoard them. He did not hoard them. This is the second thing. He became the instrument of God and visited Cornelius. He visited the Gentiles, uncircumcised Gentiles. And by his instrument, the Holy Spirit fell. And the third thing is God took. Verse 14. God took from the Gentiles a people for his name. And James says, it's all in Amos. It's all there. He has raised up a people for himself and repaired the breaches and established them in wholeness. He has made them the instrument for penetrating the Gentiles. And he has through them taken for himself a people, those who are called by his name. Amos had predicted God would raise his people. Amos had predicted the Gentile world would be penetrated. Amos had predicted he would gather his elect from all the nations. And so we have one more question. Does this say anything to this 41 and a half year old pastor and this 116 year old church and the BGC? In answer to the question, who are we? And why are we here? Well, you can finish the message. It lies on the face of it, doesn't it? Verse 16 tells you who you are. And verse 17 tells you why you're here. Who are we? Verse 16 says, we are ruins in the process of being repaired and rebuilt by the grace of God. And verse 17 says, why are we here? We are here that the rest of men may seek the Lord, all the Gentiles who are called by his name. There's a problem. Some of you might be saying, wait a minute, you, I, you just lost me. You're saying that Bethlehem is the rebuilt booth of David so that verse 17 applies to Bethlehem and the BGC and you Gentile, Piper, I thought you just said that the rebuilt booth was the people of Israel, the 12 apostles, the converts in Jerusalem. I'm all confused now. You've muddied the waters by saying that we're the rebuilt temple. Good. If you're thinking that, you're really sharp. The prophecy begins to come to fulfillment by the gathering of of Israel, a new Israel in the 12 Jewish apostles, and then 3,000 Jewish converts, and then another 2,000. But then something remarkable happens, and it's in fulfillment of prophecy. They break out after the persecution of Stephen, and by a vision, Peter becomes the visiting instrument of God to the Gentiles, and they are, by the Holy Spirit, baptized right into the family. Now, what's the house? 
Now what's the booth? Now who is the people of God being rebuilt? You are. And I am. Now, the, the theological basis for that, if you need more in the New Testament, is Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. Let me read it for you. Paul says to Gentile converts, you are no longer strangers and sojourners. You are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. I hope that begins to clarify that possible objection. So let me go back and answer the questions again. Who are we? Gentile pastor, 41 and a half years old. Gentile church, Minneapolis, 1987. BGC, mainly Gentile believers of all kinds of races and ethnic groups. Who are we? And I'll say it again. We are ruins. And I'm just going to pause there for a minute so that you don't miss the force of that. We're rubble. We are wrecks. All right, has that sunk in now? You can identify with that. Is there enough in your life to say, I know what you mean? I'll finish the sentence. We are ruins in the process of being repaired and rebuilt and stood up by the grace of God. And the second question is, why? Why? Why are we here? Why am I a pastor? Why are we in downtown Minneapolis? Why does the BGC have a new lease on life? And notice the inescapable, beautiful logic of verse 17. Do you, have you been taught by people like Tom Steller the most important words in the sentences of text are conjunctions? Have you been taught that? What's the most important word for understanding the point of verse 17? It's the word that at the beginning. Because that word that is like a trumpet. Purpose. Purpose. Purpose for being reclaimed ruins. Why? That the rest of men, the rest of Minneapolis who don't ever go to church on Sunday, who are going straight to hell, and all the hidden peoples of the world, and all the unclaimed cities of this nation, that the rest of them might be included. All those whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now let me close by two practical applications of these two questions being answered. Who we are and why we're here. The first application is this. Be encouraged this morning. Be encouraged by this text this morning. This is a day of rebuilding. Last Sunday, I said the day of ignorance, the age of ignorance is over. The times of ignorance, Acts 1730, they're over. This is a day of knowledge, a day of mission, a day of truth. Today, I want to say the day of tearing down is over. This is a day of rebuilding for the people of God. A day of reclamation and restoration and standing up again what is fallen down. And I want you to feel encouraged this morning. 
that the church you come from, though it may feel like it's got some rubble in it, or the life you're living might feel like it's just strewn with disrepair and rubble, this is a day of rebuilding. The will of God, revealed in a prophetic word, reaffirmed in an apostolic word, is I will rebuild you. I am for you. I am not disposed to tear down in these days. I am disposed to reclaim rubble heaps and make them my people. Be encouraged this morning. That is God's disposition to you today. And then be encouraged to pray. We need to pray for churches You can be encouraged to pray on the basis of this text that it is God's disposition to build up Bethlehem. You know, our attendance leveled last year. We have no more in church in the spring of 87 than we did in the spring of 86. Will that cause a loss of nerve at Bethlehem? Will we focus on this leveling off the first time in seven years with no growth in the spring? And will we say, oh, don't build, or oh, uh, God has departed, or will we look at texts like this and believe God that the day in which we live is a day for building, rebuilding, reclaiming, standing up again what has fallen down? Will there be a loss of nerve? And all of you apply it to your own churches from wherever you come and to your own lives. Pray for your churches. September 18, 7.30 p.m., Minneapolis Auditorium, David Bryan, Citywide Concert of Prayer. I hope Bethlehem can have 400 people with 8,000 others filling that auditorium for one reason, to pray for the awakening of the church in this city and around the world. David Bryan will be here to help us. I'm on the steering committee. Tom and I are committed to bring a lot of people This text is an encouragement to pray. Because when you go to pray, you need to know, well, what is God's purpose for the world? What's His purpose for the church? This text says, I'm going to build it. I'm going to rebuild it. I'm going to reclaim it. One last application. If it is true that the reason God is rebuilding His people is that the rest of men might search and find the Lord, then let's be honest with ourselves at Bethlehem and in the BGC with my own personal ministry. Let's be honest. If we do not devote our energies and our time and our efforts to this goal, the blessing will depart. That's why the blessing is here, the text says. It is here that the rest might be included. If we don't aim at the rest, the glory will depart. And so my prayer as I close is that this clear answer to who we are ruins being reclaimed by the grace of God. And this clear answer to why we're here, that the rest of men might be drawn in 
My prayer is that those two lucid, clear, resounding, biblical answers would give us nerves of steel at Bethlehem as we face the most significant challenges in the last 30 years since that building back there was built in 1955. And my prayer for myself is that this truth will so establish me in the purpose to which God has called me that when I hit the wall at 42 and a half, I won't buy a sailboat. Let's stand for prayer. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we unite our prayers together as your people, full of gratitude that when we were lying in our blood like a foundling, you didn't pass us by, but you included us and you began to reclaim us and refurbish us and restore us, our lives, our marriages, our churches, our conscience. And you have given us hope this morning. And I pray that we would be so filled with encouragement that the restoration would be so broad and so deep that individually and as churches and as a conference, all the rest of men might be drawn in, might be saved, might be included. All those upon whom your name is called and all the people said... Amen.